Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now, let's dig in. There are some places where bad things are more likely to happen. That's a fact. Isolated areas with dense foliage far enough away from homes and buildings are at the top of the list. In these quiet, rarely frequented corners, especially under the veil of night, danger finds sanctuary. Serial killers have been known to gravitate to these places for the obvious reasons. They make for the perfect playground for evil deeds. Take a victim there and you can commit the crime without witnesses. Or take your victim there after you've done the evil act and dump them somewhere along a desolate road or a few paces within a remote woods. In a sense, it's the lazy killer's choice. There's no digging of holes. Dump the body, get back in your vehicle, head to the interstate, and drive away. Camouflaged under the foliage, in a rarely visited place, a body can avoid detection for a long time. So long that it becomes a skeleton that may not be able to be identified at a glance and whose exact cause of death may remain unknown forever. Now, you might think such remote areas only exist in places like the Alaskan wilderness. That's not the case. In the United States, often not far off bustling interstate highways, it's easy to find rural, raw environs with dense woods or overgrown fields. In the southern states like Louisiana and Texas, wetlands and swamps are prevalent, and they are punctuated with dry patches where one can walk. Too wet for buildings, these areas often lay undeveloped. In Texas, there is a region that is infamous because since the early 1970s and up until 2006, Dozens of bodies have been found along a desolate stretch of fields and bayous located approximately 25 miles southeast of Houston. Most of the bodies belong to young women between the ages of 12 and 25. Adding to the region's terror, starting in the 1980s, several women went missing in and around the area, and some of their bodies have never been recovered. The fields are 25 acres large, and they run along a stretch of Interstate 45 that takes drivers from Houston, Texas, to the beach town of Galveston. After this grisly pattern developed, 
and more and more bodies were found, the locals started calling the area the Killing Fields, and it's since been dubbed the perfect place for dumping bodies. Back in the 70s and 80s, the 25-acre patch of land was owned by a petrochemical company, and rarely did anyone venture into it, save for a few people using a horse trail and the occasional kids riding their bikes. When the first few bodies were found back in the early 1970s, investigators thought it was the work of one serial killer. However, over time, it began to look like maybe multiple killers were capitalizing on the remote nature of the area. Tragically, most of the cases remain unsolved, meaning the monster or monsters responsible may still be out there. In some of the cases, the authorities have suspects. However, a lack of sufficient evidence tying those individuals to specific crimes has led to the suspects thus far getting away with, well, murder. One man whose name is well known in the true crime community and in association with the Killing Fields is Tim Miller. Miller is the founder and director of Texas Equicert, an organization that he started in 2000 to assist the families of the missing in searching for their loved ones after official efforts fail. Miller founded Texas Equicert after his own daughter, Laura, went missing in 1984, knowing the hell of that experience and how alone he and his wife felt when the police brushed Laura's disappearance off as her running away and didn't even bother to try looking for her within the first critical 24 hours. Miller turned his personal tragedy into something that helps other families of the missing. Let's talk about Laura Miller's case. Back in September of 1984, Tim and his wife's world was shaken to its foundations when their beloved teenage daughter Laura went missing. The family had just relocated from the nearby city of Dickinson, Texas to League City, Texas. These cities are only about four miles apart. But the Millers moved that short distance to try and get Laura away from a troubled group of kids she'd been hanging out with in Dickinson. They wanted to give her a fresh start in League City. The family was literally still moving into their new home on the day Laura vanished. It was September 10th, and 16-year-old Laura wanted to invite her boyfriend, Vernon, over for dinner. Laura knew her dad was planning to barbecue that night, so she asked him in the morning before he left for work if it would be okay. Tim did what any dad wanting to make his daughter happy would do, and he said, I think that's a good idea. Laura had been having some hard times of late. She'd began to suffer debilitating seizures that had forced her to miss a lot of school. Musically gifted, Laura was distraught when she had to leave the school choir. All of this was causing her to struggle socially with her peers. The only complication for Laura was that the Miller's phone wasn't yet installed. Back in the 1980s, pretty much no one had a cell phone, and most people relied on a landline in their home. Often, the phone wasn't already installed on the day you moved in. Hard to imagine, right? 
By the way, one perk of this era was that you could make silly prank phone calls without getting caught through caller ID. Bring, bring. Hello? Yes, hi. Is your refrigerator running? Uh, yes. Well, then you better go catch it. Hang up. Ha 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 ha. That's how kids amuse themselves before TikTok and Instagram. But I digress. For Laura to invite Vernon, she'd have to get to the payphone outside a nearby convenience store. The store was a half a mile away from the Miller's new home. The plan was that when Laura's mom came home for lunch that day, she would drive Laura to the payphone. So Laura's mom comes home and she drives Laura to the payphone. But once Laura was on the phone with Vernon, she didn't want to hang up right away. And her mother needed to get back to work. Laura tells her mom to go ahead to work and that she'll just walk the half mile back home. Because it wasn't a long distance and because the field's reputation as a dumping ground for bodies wasn't yet fully known, Mrs. Miller agreed. So the day goes by and when Tim and his wife returned home after work, Laura wasn't there. As they're trying to figure out where Laura is, the parents hear a knock at the front door. There stood Laura's boyfriend, Vernon. He'd shown up at the appointed hour for dinner. Tim asked him, where's Laura? And Vernon said he didn't know. Tim and his wife were immediately alarmed. Because of Laura's condition with seizures, she needed to take a medication called Dilantin twice a day. Without her meds, she could be in trouble. Tim reasoned that maybe Laura had a seizure walking home and that she might be in one of the two local hospitals and listed as a Jane Doe. So Tim and his wife go to the hospitals to see if Laura's there, but she's not. The Millers then head straight to the League City Police Department to report Laura missing. The officer immediately jumps to the conclusion that Laura is a runaway and that they should just go home and wait by the phone. The phone that's still not installed, by the way. Millers tell the police, listen, this is not normal. Our daughter is in trouble. She needs her medication. The officer then tells Tim that Laura is very streetwise, and she can get her medication anywhere. Like the audacity of this officer telling Mr. Miller what his daughter is like. And here's what makes that officer's behavior all the more egregious. Eleven months earlier, on October 10th of 1983, a 23-year-old bartender named Heidi Fye, who lived in League City, had walked to that same convenience store, just like Laura did, to use that same payphone to call her boyfriend. And like Laura, Heidi planned to walk home, but never made it. Six months after Heidi Fye disappeared, a couple who lived along a dirt road called Calder Road that dead ends were outside with their daughter. The daughter was playing in the yard, which abuts up against the 25-acre field. Their dog was outside, too, and it ran into the woods. A little while later, the dog came trotting out with something in its mouth. The couple thought at first that it was a ball, but when they got closer, they realized it was a human skull. They immediately called the police, and when the authorities searched that area in the woods, they discovered a skeleton that was later identified as Heidi Fye. Her body was found without clothes, 
which indicated she'd likely been essayed, and the coroner was able to determine that she had suffered blunt force trauma to her head as well as blows to her body. Without any clues or suspects, the investigation soon stalled and went quiet. So let's put Heidi Fye's timeline in perspective with Laura Miller's disappearance. Heidi's body was discovered in the killing fields five months before Laura Miller vanished. When Tim Miller found out about Heidi Fye's case, he begged the police to look for Laura near wherever it was that they had found Heidi. Tim would have done it himself, except the police told him that the area was private property and behind fences and that he could not go in there. Clearly, the police did not do as Tim asked because weeks turned into months and then a year, and still Laura had not been found. It wasn't until 1986, 17 months after Laura vanished, that her body was discovered in the exact same area near Calder Road where Heidi Fye's remains had been found. In fact, Laura's body was just 60 feet from where Heidi's had lain. There's absolutely no way that the police went to that area when Tim Miller asked them to. If they had, they would have found Laura much sooner. She would have still been deceased, but they would likely have been able to determine her cause of death, and there would likely also have been evidence on her body that could have linked the crime to whoever was responsible for it. The League City Police failed the Millers miserably. And get this, just before spotting Laura's body, they found another body of a female. Her body was very decomposed. What they could tell was that she had a gap between her teeth and she had been shot to death. But because that body was so badly decomposed, they were unable to identify the victim. She was therefore dubbed Jane Doe. And she remained Jane Doe from 1986 when she was found until 2019 when advancements in DNA testing finally revealed her to be Audrey Lee Cook. Cook was a mechanic, a female mechanic, and she'd been last seen alive in December of 1985. Thus, Audrey went missing after Laura. And in 1991, a passerby in the same area where Heidi, Laura, and Jane Doe had been found came upon a fourth body. The female body was badly decomposed and could not be identified. So she became known as Janet Doe. Janet Doe was later identified through DNA testing as Donna Gunsulin Prudhomme. Tim Miller is fairly convinced that if the authorities had gone right to where Heidi Fye's body was found to look for Laura's right after her disappearance, they likely would have found Laura soon enough to get all that evidence off her body, evidence like bodily fluids from the killer to track him down if he was in the system. Therefore, it's possible Audrey Cook 
and Donna Prudhomme might still be alive. After Laura was found dumped off Calder Road, Tim Miller focused on tracking down the killer. He wanted to hunt that monster down and exact revenge. Tragically, despite four decades of fighting to get Laura's killer behind bars, no one has ever been arrested and charged with her murder. But that doesn't mean that Tim doesn't know who allegedly harmed Laura. In 2022, a man who's been described as an associate of a guy named Clyde Hedrick came forward to tell Tim that Hedrick had confessed to the crime. And not only that, the associate said that he'd been with Clyde Hedrick when he dumped something large in the woods off Calder Road back in 1984, the same year that Laura was killed. This guy told Tim that he and Hedrick used to visit the fields often to throw things away. After this man came forward, Tim asked him to get in his truck with him and show him exactly where he remembers stopping with Clyde Hedrick in 1984 to dump that large item. As they were driving down Calder Road, the guy who was looking out the window suddenly told Tim to stop. He then pointed to an area in the woods and said that's where he and Clyde dumped the large item. By this point, Tim knew exactly where Laura's body had been found. And this guy? Well, he was pointing to that exact same spot. The guy told Tim that he didn't know back in 1984 what Clyde was discarding. Tim then asked the guy to show him where Hedrick lived back in the 80s. The guy directs Tim to the city of Dickinson, the same city where the Millers had lived prior to moving to League City. Once there, the man pointed to the house where Clyde Hedrick had lived, and Tim was shocked because it was just two doors down from where he and his family had lived before moving to League City, so Hedrick had been the Miller's neighbor. The associate then pointed to some nearby woods and said that's where Clyde used to hide and watch your daughter. So Hedrick had been stalking Laura in Dickinson before the family moved to League City, where Laura was eventually nabbed. The area where this guy said Hedrick would hide happened to be Laura's favorite secret place. It was an old cemetery near a bayou, just three blocks away from the Miller's house, and Laura often went there alone. But only the Millers knew about that place, or so they thought. So when Tim heard all of this, he was certain that Clyde Hedrick had to be the person who took Laura's life. And supporting this notion is Hedrick's long criminal rap sheet that includes offenses against minors, strangers, former partners, and even the state of Texas. Over the years, Hedrick has been charged with enticing a child, aggravated kidnapping, essay, criminal trespassing, terroristic threats, attempted arson, theft, possession of marijuana, and driving under the influence. You could say that Clyde Hedrick is a career 
P-O-S. Note that just two months before Laura Miller vanished, Clyde Hedrick had been connected to an incident in which a woman's body was dumped on a remote road. In July of 1984, so just two months before Laura tried to walk home from that payphone, a body was discovered on the side of a dirt road in Galveston County, Texas. The dirt road was about 20 miles from League City, where the Millers were living. The victim was 29-year-old Ellen Beeson. On the night Ellen went missing, she'd been out bar hopping with friends. The ladies had stopped at a bar called the Texas Moon Club. Something very critical to note is that victim Heidi Fye, well, the bar that she worked at was the Texas Moon Club, was the same person who was responsible for her death, a regular at the Texas Moon Club, where Ellen hit it off with a handsome young guy who was later identified as Clyde Hedrick. As the night wound down, Beeson's friends were ready to leave, but Ellen decided to stay behind because she and Clyde had decided to go for a late-night swim. So Ellen's friend said goodbye to her, and that was the last time Ellen Beeson was seen alive. Her body was found months later on that dirt road. Unfortunately, the coroner said he was unable to determine Ellen's cause of death due to decomposition, so he ruled it undetermined. The police were able to track down Ellen's friends who told them about Clyde Hedrick, and so the police knew that Hedrick was the last person seen with Ellen. Hedrick was brought down to the police station for questioning, and he told them a very suspicious story. Hedrick claimed that he and Ellen had gone swimming in a pond near the side of the road. He said that Ellen accidentally drowned that night, and although he planned to drive her to the hospital, he was afraid he would be suspected of murder. Thus, he dumped her body on that dirt road, put some garbage over it, and took off. Because there was no forensic evidence at the time to prove foul play, Hedrick was off the hook. But the police were still looking at him, and in 1996, they charged Hedrick with abusing a corpse, and he spent just one year in prison for this crime. But Ellen Beeson's family and the police were never quite satisfied with the story. So, jump to 2012, and investigators decided to exhume Ellen Beeson's body. Thankfully, she hadn't been cremated. This time, a forensic pathologist quickly saw that Ellen's skull had been badly fractured, and that her body had suffered blunt force trauma. How that original coroner missed that is beyond understanding. The mistakes of the police and that coroner led to other women dying. Unforgivable. Because you don't get a skull fracture and blunt force trauma from drowning, the death was finally ruled a homicide. In 2014, Clyde Hedrick was arrested in connection with Ellen Beeson's death. This time, he was charged with involuntary manslaughter. 
Hedrick was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but because of a hole in Texas law at the time, in October of 2021, the then 68-year-old Hedrick was released from prison after serving only eight years. There was a law that affected crimes that occurred between a certain period. If a prisoner displayed good conduct in prison, they would be released early. That law has since been changed, but because Hedrick had demonstrated good behavior throughout his eight years in prison, the authorities had to release him. The only thing Hedrick had to do was wear a GPS ankle monitor, and he did that until April 3rd of 2023. So just a few weeks ago, when his ankle monitor was removed and Clyde Hedrick was released free and clear into society, unsupervised. So right now, Clyde Hedrick is living as a free man in a halfway house in Houston, Texas. Terrifying thought for anyone living in the area. Hedrick has allegedly confessed to other inmates in prison that he's killed at least five other women. But despite all his bragging, Hedrick vehemently denies having anything to do with Laura Miller's death. Tim Miller, however, is convinced that Hedrick is Laura's killer as well as that of Heidi Fye and likely that of Audrey Cook. Based on Hedrick's history, he's likely to kill again. And now no one is keeping tabs on him. No one except Tim Miller and some of the other victims' families. As part of his oath to go after Hedrick, Tim Miller filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Hedrick in 2022 for Laura's death. And in July of 2022, Miller won the lawsuit and was awarded more than $24 million in damages. The judge granted Miller's motion for default of judgment when Hedrick failed to appear despite a notice of the hearing. And although Hedrick was found civilly liable for Laura's death, he still hasn't been criminally charged with her murder. And I'm pretty sure Hedrick isn't going to be able to cough up the $24 million dollars although I'm hoping that if he has a job, the money is handed over to Tim Miller. And I know Tim Miller didn't do this for the money. He is trying to put the pressure on Hedrick. Miller spoke directly to Hedrick in a press conference saying, and I quote, I know what you did to my daughter, and I'm not going to let you rest until we have you where you need to be for the rest of your life, end quote. What a story. Just when you think you've heard the worst true crime case ever, there's another one that's even more evil. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Our Miller went missing in 1984. Her body found two years later in what is known as the killing fields. The man Tim Miller believes killed his daughter, Clyde Hedrick, was convicted in the death of another woman and just released from prison. It's something Miller says should not have happened. He spoke with KPRC2's Michael Lapardi, who's joining us live. Michael, what is Miller saying? 
Lauren, like you mentioned, we just spoke with Tim Miller in this building just behind me a few minutes ago. And after hearing the news, he told me that he believes the system is broken. According to court records, a jury found Hendrick guilty of involuntary manslaughter in 2014 for the 1984 death of Ellen Beeson. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice says Hedrick was released from the Estelle unit at Huntsville yesterday on what's called mandatory supervision. Now, while Tim Miller suspects Hedrick played a role in his daughter's death, Hedrick was never charged in that case. Today, Miller talked about the days after his daughter went missing. I made a promise to God and Laura I'd never quit. And I'm not going to lie to God and Laura. I'm not going to do that. 